This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, what is everybody talking about these days? They're talking about nosocomial infections. And nosocomial infections have really been a problem in, in hospitals for about 700 years. They're nothing new, but they're certainly something problematic. And if there is an opportunity that we can prevent that a patient from getting an infection by being in a healthcare environment, then we should certainly do everything we can to try to avoid it. Nosocomial infections have, have really been commonly described as what we call hospital-acquired infections, but now with changes in our healthcare paradigm, more patients getting at-home health or more patients getting um, things like renal dialysis, it's really um, more appropriately to call nosocomial infections healthcare-associated, um, and it's probably the most inclusive and precise term that we currently have. If you work in a hospital um, or have anything to do with an ICU, you're aware of what's called the Nosocomial Infection Surveillance Program, or NNIS. This was a program that the Center for Disease Control introduced in the 1970s that really provided uniform definitions for these kind of infections. And the NNIS was created to really assess the magnitude of patient safety issue and develop strategies for nosocomial infection control and prevention. Current definitions of nosocomial infections is a localized systemic condition that results from adverse reaction to the presence of an infectious agent or its toxins, and it was not present or incubating at the time of admission to the hospital. Now, most nosocomial infections, this means that an infection becomes evident 48 hours or more after admission. Definition also includes infections acquired in the hospital, but not evident until after hospital discharge. However, it does not include an infection associated with a complication or extension of an infection already present on admission unless a change in pathogen or symptoms strongly suggests the acquisition of a new infection. The prevention or inevitability of an infection is not a consideration when determining whether it's nosocomial. Now, this is important. Let me say this again. The, prevent, the preventability or inevitability of an infection is not a consideration when determining whether it's nosocomial. For example, a burn patient comes in. You take a patient who is a diabetic with a A1C of 11. They're on steroids for their COPD. They're elderly. They get burned on 70% of their body. And lo and behold, they get an infection because you have to put central lines through their burns. Even though that is considered an inevitability, that would be considered a nosocomial infection. Well, why is everybody talking about this? Well, because it's, it's, a, it's a large problem, and it's a problem that costs a lot of money. And any problem that costs a lot of money really gets people's attention. It also actually harms a lot of patients. But in my somewhat jaundiced opinion, I think it's the fact that it costs insurance companies and the government a lot of money more than the impact it has on human suffering that's getting people really fired up. Uh, the CDC reports that uh, they account for an estimated 2 million infections or 90,000 deaths and 4.5 billion in excess health care costs annually. It's estimated that intensive care units account for fewer than 10% of total beds in the hospital, but more than 20% of all hospital-acquired infections occur in ICUs, and approximately 30% of all ICU patients are diagnosed with a health care-acquired infection. 
when you think about infections in intensive care units, we can think about things that are non-modifiable, things that we really can't do much about, and things that are modifiable. And the things that are modifiable really are um, easily modifiable. Um, most um, treatment and caregiver related, uh, cross-contamination from one patient to the next. Well, how can we prevent that? We can wash our hands. It is amazing to me. We have uh, a really a rigorous program in our uh, burn unit about washing hands. Uh, every person who comes into that unit must demonstrate to the medical receptionist who sits at the front door that they have cleansed their hands with an alcohol uh, alcohol foam. The amount of pushback that these medical receptionists get from health care providers typically physicians, about washing their hands is unbelievable. Uh, that, you know, you would think that, you know, and typically what I will tell the medical receptionist when they tell me to please wash my hands is I would tell them, thank you for not allowing me to kill somebody with my bare hands. Um, what we have done in our ICU or our burn unit is I'm the medical director and I've put a bounty on my uh, head is that if somebody finds me not washing um, my hands, um, first of all, stop me, correct me, but also they will be rewarded with a, a gift certificate either to the Starbucks coffee shop in the hospital uh, or to our McDonald's. <laughs> yes, we have a McDonald's in our, our hospital. Um, and so people are incentivized to stop me. If they're going to incentivize to stop their medical director, they will certainly stop anyone. And there's a good story of one of our medical receptionists stopping a member of the Secret Service who was on a pre-VIP visit uh, scanning out the burn unit. And a large Secret Service man who you know has a machine gun under his his sports coat was asked to stop and wash his hands. Um, invasive devices are clearly another modifiable um, risk factor every day in the intensive care unit assess whether you need that particular piece of plastic just because a piece of plastic a central venous catheter or fully catheter or an arterial line makes your care of that patient convenient doesn't necessarily mean it's necessary so again try to do what we call plastic rounds the things that we try to do on rounds or at least a kid at the residence is that i want them to put on the altar of the icu gods a piece of plastic or a medication, preferably an antibiotic. Every day I want us to sacrifice a piece of plastic or a medication off the med list, which gets us the next one, antibiotic use. A lot of times antibiotics are prescribed not for the patients, but for the physicians. If a patient doesn't need an antibiotic, by all means, stop it. The integrity of skin and mucosal barriers. Well, this would be listed as a modifiable risk factor, and clearly in most ICUs it is if people are getting skin tears and things like the cubitus ulcers and so forth. But in a burn unit, it's not really modifiable. It's clearly a risk factor, uh, and if you've lost skin on 70 or 80% of your body, it's not modifiable. It's going to be modifiable over a period of months. Nutritional support clearly is uh, modifiable. Um, it is interesting to me uh, that you know it, it's, that somebody can't be without food for 24 hours by the Geneva Convention, but typically will allow people go uh, without food in a hospital for several days. I don't even like the term nutritional support in my, I like prefer the term nutritional therapy. The notion that you can starve patients and expect them to maintain immune integrity, strength, and be able to get better is certainly um, ridiculous. Glucose control, uh, clearly glucose control, um, and your glucose runs out of control, uh, there's an increased rate of infection, as we've mentioned in previous podcasts. What is the definition of glucose control remains debated, but clearly allowing people to run to the 
blood sugars are 250 prior to uh, uh, getting their blood sugar down, what we used to do is no longer appropriate practice. Transfusions, let me say that again, transfusions, transfusions are a modifiable risk factor for the development of infections in the intensive care unit. There's a disconnect here typically between the operating room and the ICUs. Anesthesia uh, uh, will, in, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm trying to be polite, and, and I apologize for my anesthesia colleagues, some are very liberal in their transfusion practices. Uh, with point-of-care testing, um, we can be a little bit more precise in when patients get blood, but keep in mind is that every study that's ever evaluated has shown that transfusions are a immunosuppressant and therefore are going to increase your likely risk of infection. Immobilization, keeping a patient in bed. Bed is the worst patient for a sick person a sick person to be. Get them out of bed, whether you're ambulating them, getting them in a neurochair, get into a bedside chair, get these people out of bed. There's good evidence, and we're, we're starting this with some of our colleagues in the medical intensive care unit here at Vanderbilt, and we're doing it in the burn unit of modifying ventilated patients. Um, and it clearly has benefit to their veins, their skin, their lungs, and it even has some benefit in regards to the hypercatabolism related to injury. Like to stay, get people out of the hospital. Um, and this is something that's really hard sometimes to communicate to the families is that we want to get your loved one out of the hospital. It's not because the insurance company isn't paying, it's because hospitals are dangerous places and when you're sick you don't need to be there. What are some of the non-modifiable? the compromised host defenses, and again, whether the patient is, is on steroids, whether they're elderly, whether they've had a bone marrow transplant, the age of the patient we can't um, adjust, the gender, underlying chronic illnesses, they come with that, they bring that to the table, pre-existing malnutrition, obesity, again, uh, non-modifiable, recent trauma or major, sur major surgery, uh, not modifiable, and again, as we mentioned, the uh, immunosuppressant element of that. There are so many uh, nosocomial infections to discuss, but we're going to start with the one that's been a uh, big focus uh, at Vanderbilt, and that is the ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Now, there are different types of, of ventilator-associated pneumonia, we should say, but there's VAP, which is defined as ventilator-associated pneumonia after institutional ventilatory support. Then you've got HAP, which is hospital-acquired pneumonia. Hospitalized patients, not on ventilatory support. And then you've got HCAP, which is a global term for any pneumonia occurring in any patient cared for in any healthcare facility, regardless of ventilatory support. So a patient coming from a nursing home or a rehabilitation facility who's not on a ventilator would be considered having a healthcare-associated pneumonia. Uh, Ventilator-acquired pneumonia is the most common and deadliest of the hospital-acquired infections in the intensive care unit. It's estimated about 10 to 20% of patients on a ventilator more than 48 hours will develop ventilator-acquired pneumonia. These patients appear twice as likely to die as patients without ventilator-acquired pneumonia. That's a pretty bold comment, so let me reference that. The source of that is Safdar and colleagues, Critical Care Medicine, 2005, Volume 33, pages 2184 to 2193. Some people ask why I put references on an audio podcast, and I tell my residents that 43% of all statistics that are quoted at the bedside are made up. For that reason, we'll distribute a lot of PDFs or put them up on the website for the residents to get. I think that an intelligent resident won't just take my word for it, that they'll challenge me uh, in saying, can you show me that in the literature? Not to be controversial, but again, we have uh, a role as educators and professors to make sure that we are teaching the truth with a capital T. So that's why I put references in the podcast. 
there's a lot of reasons why patients who are on ventilators will develop um, a ventilator-acquired pneumonia. One of it is the microaspiration of the oropharyngeal pathogens around the cuff. Um, and microaspiration of gastroenteric uh, regurgitant secretions, uh, biofilm that are on the endotracheal tube, uh, contamination via the respiratory and healthcare equipment. What does all this mean? Well, just because somebody is orally tracheally inhibited, we think that their airway is protected. It's protected in the operational sense of the word, but it's not isolated. There's a, a clear difference between an isolated airway and a protected airway. Um, the, the balloon does not prevent secretions. It is not a watertight seal. And so what happens is a lot of that nasty swill that accumulates in people's oral pharynx pools above the balloon, and it will basically leak down around the endotracheal tube. There's several examples of this that when you... We, Next time, if you talk to your respiratory therapist, and I don't recommend that you do this, but when you ever notice somebody get extubated incorrectly, or what we do in burn units, we do a, a cuff leak. Sometimes with people who inhale um, a lot of toxic fumes or uh, um, high-temperature gases will get swelling of their their uh, tracheal bronchial mucosa, and it will occlude around the uh, the trachea. And so what we need to do is make sure that they're not swollen. We can drop the balloon. Before you drop a balloon and, and testing somebody for a cuff leak or prior to extubation, you always, always, always suction the patient deeply and basically get all those pool secretions above the endotracheal tube, or the, the balloon. If somebody doesn't do that before they drop the balloon, patients will always start the cough and gag. Always. Why do they do that? The reason why they do that is you get this pool of nasty swill secretions. You drop the balloon. It all drops down into the lung, and it really agitates the patient, hits the crina, and they start to cough and gag because now they've got that, that, for lack of a better term, mouth sewage dropping into their lungs. Uh, when you're in the intensive care unit and you're taking care of a sick patient, one of the things is that we talk about is a lot of oral uh, hygiene care. And before we did a lot of oral hygiene care, you would take care of a sick patient and the their their breath uh, the smell from the oral pharynx was horrible why because of all of the bacterial content of, of those secretions so this all seems reasonably obvious when we think about it the other thing that develops is that these plastic next time you take out it in the tracheal tube look at the nasty swill and, and you've got this piece of plastic and it's covered basically with a slime which becomes a great place for bacteria to kind of set up and this is what's known as the biofilm now, what are some of the organisms that uh, will develop the, cause, the uh, causative pathogens? Early on, typically it's things like strep pneumonia, staph aureus. Uh, they're typically antibiotic-sensitive gram-negatives. But after about five days, you start going more towards some of the more resistant types of organisms, things like MRSA, Pseudomonas, and some of the more multiple drug-resistant organisms. Clearly, in our institution, in our intensive care unit, the one that we really dread is the development of Acinetobacter. Diagnosis of pneumonia is very difficult, uh, and it's interesting that people speak with great authority at bedside about how to diagnose a pneumonia, but then you go to meetings like, you know, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and you see very bright, intelligent uh, people that uh, are not sure on how to diagnose a pneumonia properly. People who speak with absolute authority, this is the only way to diagnose a pneumonia, and in my opinion, are just demonstrating hubris. The diagnosis is difficult, hotly debated. Um, and uh, we need to be careful that we don't underdiagnose pneumonia, but also overtreatment can also cause a lot of problems, particularly in development of um, multiple drug-resistant organisms. We want to identify patients who have truly 
infectious problems. Now, this is important because the presence of bacteria does not always confer the presence of disease. And I remember reading this in one of my burn textbooks. This was an opening chapter uh, in one of Dave Herndon's books. But the example that we'll typically use on rounds, and, and I like to torment particularly my, my residents, is that if we swab one's hand, if we swab somebody's hand, even if they've used their alcohol gel, we're going to find bacteria. Um, and depending on the residents, some, some real questionable bacteria. But um, just because we isolate bacteria on a culture swab of the hand doesn't mean that somebody has a hand infection. Remember, an infection means you've got an invasion of bacteria into normal tissue because of decreased host defenses. Um, just because somebody has a positive culture from something like a tracheal aspirate or even a bronchoscopy and BAL doesn't necessarily mean that patient has an infection. And so if we treat every positive culture, what are we doing? We're putting people on some antibiotics that they don't need, we're typically changing their bacterial flora, and we may be changing their bacterial flora to a flora or a set of bacteria that are resistant to organisms. When we talk about resistance of organisms, particularly when I'm talking to families, I'll talk a lot about baseball. Is that you'll see that a lot of times as we get towards the end of the baseball season, uh, the major league baseball teams will bring up pitchers from the minor leagues. And the reason why they're doing it is because the major league hitters have not seen that pitcher before. They have not learned to hit it, that, that particular pitcher's delivery. And as we get into October and start watching the, the fall classics, and we're seeing people play against teams they haven't played with in the past, you'll see a batter will not be able to hit a particular hitter, or a batter will not be able to hit a particular pitcher until the second or third time they're up at bat. And at that point, they're beginning to realize hit the pitcher's timing, their delivery, the release, how the ball is going to travel in space, and they're learning. They're learning learning how to hit that baseball. Bacteria are very similar to this in regards to antibiotics. The more that they get to see a particular antibiotic, the more they're exposed to it, the bacteria begin to figure out biochemically how to hit the baseball, how to work around it. And in doing so, we develop resistant organisms. So that if a patient does have a colonization and we basically breed out a resistant flora and they develop an infection, we are now obligated to use stronger antibiotics and by stronger we're getting to the point where we almost call it chemotherapy because these antibiotics are causing damage to other organs most notably the kidney so please choose your antibiotics sparingly and make sure that patients who get antibiotics really need antibiotics so the goals of our diagnosis are pretty straightforward but they're not that easy and that is diagnose a patient who's truly infected identify the true organism they have, and identify that it's susceptible. Um, and that's not as easy as we typically like to make it to believe. When we think about the CDC's diagnosis of pneumonia, and, and, and these, uh, their diagnosis of pneumonia is typically used for surveillance purposes, but it's fever, whiteout, infiltrate, purulent sputum. Fever, whiteout, infiltrate, purulent sputum. There's not just presence of a bacteria. When you look at the different pneumonia definitions by things like the SCCM or the American College of Chest Physicians or the CDC, you'll notice that's frequently lacking in those is the presence of a microbiological finding. Most of the diagnosis of pneumonia rely on clinical finding. But what happens in practice all too often is somebody has a fever, they get a um, um, gram stain culture sensitivity of a sputum, blood, and urine and a sputum will come back positive and somebody will say, oh, the patient has strep pneumo and they say, well, we need to start them antibiotics 
And what they're not putting in that diagnostic consideration is, does this patient have a fever? What does the x-ray look like? Are they hypoxemic? Uh, and because the patient may not actually have um, a pneumonia based on that. Now, to help improve some of this, there's something called the Clinical Pulmonary Infection Score, or CPIS, developed in the 90s. And what it does is it combines radiographic, physiologic, and microbi- microbiological data. And it's still recommended by a, a lot of publications to kind of help with some of the diagnosis of pneumonia, or certainly in research. And so you've got different points that you assign for temperature, leukocytosis, whether you've got tracheal secretions, uh, what's your PF ratio, for those you know this year, your, your ratio of PaO2 to your FiO2, what does your chest x-ray look like, do you have no infiltrate or do you have a localized infiltrate, and then what does your tracheal aspirate look like. One of the key things is that you have to remember in the treatment of pneumonia is the delay in treatment um, um, significantly increases mortality. Let me say that again if I wasn't clear enough. Delay in treatment clearly increases mortality. Now let me say it another way, is that if you start treatment for a pneumonia and you're not precise about the antibiotics that you, you, you pick, you, you pick three or four antibiotics but you're not covering the right organism, even though the patient's getting antibiotics, you're not treating the pneumonia. What's going to happen to your mortality? Your mortality is going to be greater. So have a low sensitivity go after pneumonias aggressively, but make sure that when you pick your antibiotics and you're starting with, say, your triple antibiotics, you're trying to get the appropriate spread of, uh, of microorganisms that you pick antibiotics that statistically are going to be uh, likely covered um, or cover the suspected organisms. Now, this has to have some knowledge of the typical infections that you may find in your hospital or in your particular ICU and what are the sensitivities of those particular antibiotics and this is when we get something called antibiograms uh, that your hospital should be able to produce to the providers uh, by intensive care unit the typically um, commonly identified isolates and what are their sensitivities to the various antibiotics. Clearly empiric antibiotics are recommended for all patients considered of truly having a VAP, not just somebody who has a positive culture or somebody who just has a fever, but people who truly suspect of having a ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Is there a new or progressive infiltrate on the chest x-ray? Plus two of three things such as we said, a purulent sputum, fever, leukocytosis, uh, or also a, a CPIS score of greater than 6. And, and the CPIS scores, I'm not going to, I've told you the major elements of that, but I'm not going to go through all of the individual points. But you can go through and find out what a CPIS table is and identify all the points. So, what antibiotics do we choose? Well, again, you need to know a little bit about the microbiology of your particular uh, ICU, but uh, you're going to go limited or broad spectrum Um I want to not really go into naming any particular antibiotics for a couple of reasons. One is is that these podcasts stay on the server for several months and in some cases years. And and organisms come and go and antibiotics come and go as well as their adverse effects. So I don't want to say use these particular antibiotics because six months from now the literature may show that they're ineffective. But I really want to teach the overlying concepts. Um, the other thing is, is we mentioned that each patient will have unique 
uh, antibiotic needs and each hospital as well as each intensive care unit has unique antibiograms. But things you need to be thinking of is has the patient recently been hospitalized, say in the last 90 days. If they've been hospitalized recently or come from a nursing home or a dialysis unit, they may have some inherent resistance um, on day three or four that a person who is what I would call a naive host, uh, say coming in off the street, have they been previously on antibiotics for the treatment of a community-acquired infection or did say they have a uh, um, something which they were getting treatment for, a cellulitis, and they were on antibiotics for a week or two? Again, what that will do is potentially change their what I would call their microbiological flora. So they would not particularly be a naive host. You might want to escalate your antibiotics uh, more quickly. Do they have the presence of ARDS, the presence of sepsis, immunosuppression? Do they have chronic indwelling devices that could be a source of infection? And again, there's a high frequency of multiple drug resistance in the community. The Center for Disease Control recognizes this. However, CMS, who actually pays Medicare bills, thinks that all uh, multiple drug resistance infections have to occur in a hospital. And again, if there's a likelihood of drug resistance, you want to use broad spectrum. Uh, and again, use your local microbiological data. You might need to add vancomycin or linazolid uh, if you're using MRSA. I love linazolid. Uh, I'll, I'll give you my bias on this. And first of all, I'll disclaim that I have no conflicts of interest. I don't get paid by any company. But one of the things I notice is that we'll get people who will get an MRSA line infection, and then we put them on vancomycin, and we need to do what? Well, we need to keep a line in them to treat them for their line infection. And to me, it's just like you know, screaming into an echo chamber. The nice thing about linazolid is its pharmacokinetics are equivalent whether you give it IV or oral. So that's my bias. I'm sure somebody will, will take ombridge with that, but that's just, again, it's, it's my bias. If patients develop a VAP while on antibiotics for another infection, again, include the antibiotic from a different class, because if, if plan A didn't work, don't stay with plan A. And you need to evaluate where you're at at 48, 48 or 72 hours. There was a study several years ago in one of the surgical journals that demonstrated that surgeons particularly, now I'm, I'm a surgeon so I can kind of pick on family, but it showed that when initial cultures were obtained and, and um, uh, surgeons would put patients on, on triple antibiotics, they typically did not tailor their antibiotics at 48 hours or 72 hours once we started having identification and sensitivity data come back. Keep in mind, your initial choice of antibiotics is just that. It's a temporary choice until we know more about the organism. We know its name, we know what it's sensitive to, and at that point, narrow your antibiotics. Do not keep people on antibiotics they do not need. You will harm the patient. De-escalate. Again, you also have to consider what's the duration uh, of antibiotic therapy. This is variable as well, but again, more is not um, the best in, in a lot of circumstances. I think one of the things that we may be learning from our pediatric colleagues is that due to the problems of giving uh, antibiotics to children, the pediatricians are showing that we could treat certain infections of, of shorter and shorter duration. Um, typically for pneumonia, you know, the literature say that perhaps 13 days is probably adequate for pneumonia, but that may differ based on the organism and the patient's host, uh, host factors. The other thing is always consider is if you're giving a person antibiotics and they're not getting better, think about it. Why are they not getting better? Do we have the wrong bug? Did a new infection develop? Did we have the right bug initially and now they're resistant? Um, are there some host factors that are involved? Uh, one of the things you need to keep about is where you're sending that antibiotic to. You know, lung is to, it, lung, interesting enough, does not seem to be a great 
uh, tissue for tissue penetrance. We usually think in the term of something like uh, meningitis. I find at the residents and the medical students, you say, well, what antibiotics do you want to use the treatment of meningitis? People initially get, they get the fact that, gee, I've got this thing called the blood-brain barrier. And so not all antibiotics, even though it may work on paper, I get a report back from microbiology that says, sensitive, 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 sensitive. I've got to look at those antibiotics and find out which antibiotics adequately or best penetrate the blood-brain barrier, and that's going to determine my choice, in addition to the sensitivity data. That's not unique just for brain or meningitis. It should also be uh, considered for other tissues, particularly lung. Lung is not a great tissue to penetrate, but also certain other interdominal types of infections. Certain antibiotics don't work very well in low oxygen tension environments or low pH environments, something like an abscess. Um, so you should choose your antibiotics from that. Talking to my infectious disease colleagues, if you take an organism, for instance, that's resistant in the urine uh, on paper, in vitro, it may be resistant. But in vivo, for instance, in the urine, it could be sensitive because what? The urine concentrates the antibiotics. So the concentrations that you're getting when treatment of, say, a urinary tract infection are much greater. And so sometimes Sometimes in people who have um, multiple drug-resistant urinary tract infections, you'll see our infectious disease colleagues use an antibiotic even though it says R on a piece of paper. Keep in mind, you're not treating a piece of paper, you're treating a patient. What are some of the things that we can do to try to prevent infections or try to prevent reinfections? Um, and, and certainly this has been a source of a lot of attention in the treatment of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. There are modifiable risk factors, and these include one is the presence of mechanical ventilation. Can we get the patient away from mechanical ventilation? Uh, does the patient have tubes, either a nasotracheal tube or a nasogastric tube? These are sources of infection. The requirement for reintubation. Keeping the patient supine. Are they getting gastric feedings? These are potential problems. Stress ulcer prophylaxis. Their metal status. The use of paralytics. Um, how the ventilator is maintained as far as changing of tubing and so forth. And certainly hand hygiene, which means wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. When we think about other strategies of ventilation, don't um, be more aggressive in, in non-invasive ventilation. Um, watch your, your uh, endotracheal tube cuff pressure. Um, there's a um, tube that allows um, subglottic suctioning. It's called a high-low tube, which we're starting to use more at Vanderbilt. And again, what that does is it removes some of those secretions that sit there like sewage above that balloon. Uh, and, and they've been demonstrated in the use of other modifiable factors to reduce the uh, incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Uh, daily sedation uh, holidays uh, seem to uh, improve or reduce the likelihood of ventilator-acquired pneumonias, as well as the positioning of the patient. We should keep our patients in a uh, semi-recumbent position of 30 to 45 degrees. Oral hygiene protocols that uh, include antiseptics such as chlorhexidine um, may be a modifiable risk factor for the development of ventilator-acquired pneumonia as things such as sucralphate or H2 blockers or stress ulcer prophylaxis. Enteral feeds over TPN um, and verified two placements, obviously. Pneumococcal vaccine for patients greater than 65 years of age is another um, thing that we can do to reduce the incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Many intensive care units, including those at Vanderbilt, have done what we call the VAP bundle. And these are things that we do to try to reduce the overall incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. And these would include um, 
things such as oral hygiene, stress ulcer prophylaxis, um, sedation holidays, spontaneous breathing trials, uh, keeping the head of the bed elevated, and using these things have been shown to reduce the rate of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. One of the things that's very interesting when you look at CDC surveillance, and this came up recently um, in our hospital, is that according to the CDC, you can only have one infection at a time in regards to surveillance. So um, the CDC criteria are just because somebody is, doesn't have a pneumonia based on surveillance purposes doesn't mean that they're not clinically getting treated for pneumonia. I have a little bit of time getting my brain around that, but this is what I'm told by our infection control folks. The other thing that we have seen is that in periods where we've had a decrease in ventilator-acquired pneumonias, we've had, say, an increase in bloodstream infections uh, or urinary tract infections. And what I've been told is that, um, that a singular patient can only, by surveillance purposes, have a singular infection at a given point in time. And therefore, if a patient has a ventilator-acquired pneumonia and a urinary tract infection, they'll typically get scored as having a ventilator-acquired pneumonia. If you drop your incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonias and you've got this basal rate of urinary tract infections, what you're going to see then is an increased rate in urinary, urinary tract infections rate based on CDC surveillances, even though that background rate was there the entire time. So that's an interesting concept um, so sometimes the surveillance data aren't actually telling the clear story of what's really happening in regards to what the patient's getting treated for or what we're seeing in the intensive care units. That's the best that I can explain based on what was explained to me. Um, you've been listening to the podcast um, IC Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. I have other podcasts called Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, a pharmacology podcast. Um, um, we're going to try to get through uh, these different nosocomial infections because, again, this seems to be a major source of discussion almost every day in our intensive care units. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day.